Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Grim Tidings Podcast. I am your host, Philip Overby. Uh, Rob Matheny is sick today, so I'm covering solo. Today's guest is the epic author of the new book, Fish Wielder. Uh, his name is J.R.R.R. Hardison, or Jim Hardison. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Philip. I'm glad to be here. So the J.R.R.R., do you actually have three R's in your name, or is that a tribute? <laughs> it's a, Well, you know, R's are about credibility and fantasy. <laughs> yeah. So if you think about it, like Stephen R. Donaldson, he's mm. only got one R. Uh-huh. He's a good he's a good fantasy writer, but the thing that they also add is humor. So you know, if you've ever read uh, White Goldwielder or any of his stuff, it's great fantasy, but it doesn't have a lot of humor in it. You step up to like a J.R.R. Tolkien or a George R.R. Martin, and then you've got epically great fantasy, um, but with some humor in it. So like J.R.R. Tolkien is droll, and George R.R. Martin is witty. Uh, you know, if you get three R's. That's some serious fantasy and some serious humor going on there. So that's that's why I have the three. They don't just give those out. You have to earn those. <laughs> yeah, I don't have an R yet. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to earn my R one of these days. It, uh, yeah. We we have it, interviewed uh, Michael R. Fletcher on the show before, so there's an R. Is he a fantasy writer? Yes. All right. Well, is he funny? <laughs> yeah, I think so. He's. He's pretty funny, but he's also pretty violent also as far as his fiction goes. So there's a little mm-hmm. bit funny. And and you're in the same vein. that uh, Very funny, but also not afraid to get dirty with the violence. <laughs> uh, there was definitely an attempt to do some over-the-top violence in there, in a, in a kind of a Monty Python and the Holy Grail vein. Yeah, and we're, uh, I want to ask you about that more. But bef- before we get into the nitty-gritty... Uh, could you tell us about Fishwielder as a story and what inspired you to write this uh, fantasy tale? Sure. So um, it's an epically silly, epic fantasy. I like to say it's kind of like Lord of the Rings if it was set in Narnia, but written by the Monty Python guys while they were listening to They Might Be Giants music. The basic gist is that like a thousand and two years ago, um, the Dark Lord Moron created the Pudding of Power with which he hoped to enslave the whole magical world of Grome. But while he was waiting for it to cool, the allied armies of the elves and the humans and all the good guys got together, and and he was defeated, and he evaporated before he got a chance to eat the pudding. So everybody thought the pudding was lost, like it got washed down a drain or something. But a thousand and two years later, as the story begins, the dark brotherhood of the bad religion, led by the heartless one, is seeking for the pudding of power, so that they can control the world of Grome. And our heroes, uh, Thoral Mighty Fist, who's kind of a drunken barbarian guy, and his best friend, uh, Talking Koi Fish, they stumble into the plot, and then they need to go on a quest to recover the pudding of power. I love that uh, all that information you just casually share, pudding of power and <laughs> these kind of like crazy ideas. But they're, they're really awesome, awesomely executed in the story. And Thank you very much. There's a lot of uh, funny stuff, and I think, uh, you know, in the Grim Tidings podcast, we usually cover a darker edge of fantasy, and there, there's some there's some darkness in there a little bit. Uh, it's it's kind of, you kind of thumb your nose at it a bit, but it's it's definitely uh, uh, grim in some ways. Yeah, it's, it's one of those stories that 
I, I would like to see more more of. And uh, there's not a lot of comedic fantasy being written right now. As far as this story goes, what are your plans uh, for it in the future? Are you are you going to do further books in the series, or is it just a one 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 shot standalone? Well, with any epic fantasy, it has to be a trilogy. I think there's a law about that. So this is the first book in an epic trilogy. Um, I'm hard at work on the second one right now, about 20,000 words into it. It's called Fish Wielder 2, A Fish <laughs> Out of Water. And uh, it continues the epic saga of the adventures of Thor Almighty Fist in the land of Grom. Cool. And then you started writing other stuff before. You were you were into movies, actually. Can you tell us what you, what made you decide to change from writing movies to writing prose fiction. Yeah, um it's actually it was sort of a change back. If if we go all the way back in the wayback machine when I was about I don't know, 10 years old or 8 years old or something, uh 8 I guess in first grade, the teacher told us to write down what we were going to do when we grew up and I I said I was going to be a writer. And um that was kind of the plan. And then, you know, you start getting out of high school and you're looking at prospects and thinking, "Wow, the the writer thing is cool." But the direct path to glory is a little more difficult. So I decided out of high school that I was going to start a game company. And I tried that for about a year. And then I went to film school. And the film school thing led to the, the movie making, um, which, as far as I was concerned, was really just a way to tell stories and get them in front of people. And um, right out of college, partnered up with some friends to make a super low budget feature film. That was called The Creature from Lake Michigan, which turned out to be an enormous disaster, but a, a great learning experience, as enormous disasters so frequently are. So after that, I uh, focused on directing, and for a while I was a commercial and entertainment director. Worked at a place called Will Vinton Studios, mostly in animation in Portland, Oregon. You know, I, I started doing some screenwriting. I wrote a screenplay for a show called Popeye's Voyage, which was sort of a relaunch of Popeye. I think it was in 2004. Then I wrote for a, a children's series on PBS called Seymour's Playhouse. You know, I, I was really realizing how difficult it is to get things written and made. And so in a complete reverse decision of, you know, what I thought after high school, I decided it'd actually be better just to write stuff um, as books and things like that, because it would be easier to get those out in front of the world than it would be to do movies. So I wrote a um, graphic novel for Dark Horse Comics. And then even that, somebody else has got to draw the pictures. So finally, I thought, you know, I should just write books. I'd actually been kicking the idea of Fishwielder around for a long time. I think I, I first started writing it when I was about 15, mostly because I was so steeped in all of the epic fantasy stuff at that point. And um, it's so ripe, some of it, for playing with, for having a little fun with. So um, I had started it. The whole book, when I wrote the first draft of it when I was 15, was like 10 pages long. And uh, I'd actually been working on something really dark and um, horror-filled, and it, it was bumming me out. So i flipping through old stuff. I found Thor Almighty Fist, and I thought, oh, that, that'll lighten the mood. So just to distract myself, I wrote on that for a while, and then I got really involved in it and finished the thing up. And, and the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, that's great. That's cool that you decided to go back and resurrect something from years ago. I know, I know a lot of writers have done that, have, uh, have a project that they really love, and they just didn't get around to finishing it or getting it where they wanted it. And then they go back, and it's like meeting an old friend again. Oh, look. It's Thoral, Thoral, my old friend. <laughs> <laughs> After you wrote this, uh, you obviously 
went out and got an agent because we, we've talked to your agent a few times. Uh, Mark Gottlieb, how did you get hooked up with, uh, we call him super agent man, uh, Mark Gottlieb. He is a super agent man. He is awesome. You know, when, when I first finished writing fish wielder, I wasn't sure how I was going to proceed with it. I, uh, I knew from a little bit of past experience that the slush pile adventure of, you know, just submitting it unsolicited to places is very difficult. And, you know, in all the intervening years, self-publishing has completely changed from, you know, a vanity press kind of thing to something lots of people do. So I had been considering that. And um, there were a few people I'd shown the manuscript to, and they all seemed pretty convinced that I, I should try and go the traditional publishing route. But that I would need an agent to do that. And uh, my sister-in-law actually sent me a list. She's a writer as well. She sent me a list of uh, places you could find agents. So, you know, I spent a few hours combing through names and looking at agents. And and what I would do is I'd find an agent that seemed to publish the kind of book I was writing or or not publish, uh, represent the kind of book I was writing. And uh, and then I'd see if I could find any information on them. And uh, so I just did some Google searches and Mark kept coming up. First off, he he was representing some really funny books right then. And he also, unlike a lot of agents, he seemed uh, eager and open to finding new talent. So um, I sent a query letter off to him and um, you know, they have a nice electronic submission form on the Trident website. I sent the uh, query off to him and um, he got back to me shortly and it has been great working with Mark ever since. He seems like a the kind of agent that as a dream agent for people, uh, as, as much as we've talked to him, we've talked to him twice now. And, uh, he's got great ideas about how to spread the word about his authors. And he, he always talks up all of his authors and it just sounds like he's lovely in every possible way. My interactions with him have all been great. Um, he is an excellent guy to have in your corner. As far as having an agent, what, what would you say is, has been the greatest benefit so far? Um, well, I think that the the key benefit is the door it provides into publishers. So like I said, you know, if you just do a cold submission unsolicited to a publisher, your manuscript gets put on a huge pile of um, books that somebody has to kind of comb through and see if, you know, there's any interest. So you start really at the very bottom with whoever it is that comes through that pile. And then they have to like it and recommend it upward to somebody who has to like it and recommend it upward. And, you know, when you've got a good agent in your corner, you start at the top. They are basically, they have a relationship with the publisher, with an editor, and they not only have a relationship, that means that they know what a lot of editors are looking for. So they get to walk in the front door, sit down with the editor, metaphorically speaking, and uh, and advocate for your book. And I find that tremendously helpful. What what role does he play after he gets your book in the door, so to speak, uh, as far as the continuing relationship between him and his author? My experience working with Marcus, he has continued to be a great advocate and booster for the book. So in terms of an advocate, he was intimately involved in negotiating the contract and giving me advice about you know what we wanted to be in the contract and what we should avoid. Um, so you know, that was all stuff that I was very unfamiliar with, but he saved me a tremendous amount of time there and gave me great advice and negotiated hard for me. So that, that was really useful. But then he has continued to, um, represent for the book. So, 
you know, he's constantly posting things on social media where Trident has a fairly big presence. Um, he's also introduced me to PR people and to opportunities to promote the book. Uh, for example, you know, talking to you guys about the book. Um, he's just a great booster and advocate. Yeah, actually, I, I saw the fish wielder stuff on Facebook due to Mark sharing it. And uh, I kept seeing all your posts and was like, man, this guy, he's got it all figured out as far as like all the cool shit that you're putting fish wielder on. Uh, you, you know, you have coffee cups, buttons, socks that I've seen, M&Ms with little fish on them. Uh, it's just you have all sorts of like cool shit that I think a lot of authors would never even imagine thinking about how, how have you found this has worked out for you so far as you know having fish wielder on all these various things it's been very interesting so the first thing is i feel like i started putting fish wielder on all that stuff more out of desperation than <laughs> um than any great overarching plan what happened was i sort of underestimated how long it was going to take to get actual books in my hand and I had set myself up to do some um, Comic-Cons and things like that and uh, realized before the first one that it would be kind of ridiculous to be sitting at a table at a Comic-Con with absolutely nothing. <laughs> no <laughs> yeah. book, no nothing. So um, I went to a site that makes banners and um, was looking into getting a banner for the table. And they make all kinds of other stuff. So I started <laughs> looking at the different things that you could make and um, yeah, I've always been kind of a collector of that kind of shit. So <laughs> I, I thought it'd be great to have a T-shirt. And as long as they have T-shirts, I could make some buttons and things. And hey, you can do coffee cups. And um, and once I got started, I just kind of kept adding things and looking around for resources to make things. The hardest ones were the socks. I really love socks, cool socks. And uh, so I, I had to go through two or three different providers to actually get somebody that could do socks the right way but the socks have been one of the biggest giveaway items people love the socks i think probably because they don't get you know fantasy author socks all that often so yeah it's a collector's item probably also in, in the, a in collector's the item you can wear <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i think that's i think that's really cool do you want to give do you want to give that website a shout out <laughs> so if other authors want to check out where they can get various cool stuff they can check out this website yeah so um i think it's called 24hourwristbands.com that's the place that makes made all the t-shirts and the posters and things like that there's a bunch of these websites that are actually affiliated so it's a little hard to remember exactly which one was which there's you print it and there's 24-hour wristbands which i think are connected to each other but those guys were great. And there's a million different places that you can check out. As far as the socks go, I'd actually have to look up the name of the sock place. Because like I said, I tried two or three different ones before I found the the sock place that really worked for me. I, I do have all this stuff detailed on the webpage for Fishwielder, fishwielder.com. Surprisingly, that <laughs> website wasn't taken. Um, there's a, a page called The Diary. And in the diary, I actually chronicled the year between when the book was accepted for publication and when it was actually came out. And uh, in there, I list all the things that I've tried and done and who I used to do them. Yeah, I, che I checked out the diary section, and, and that's where I saw the M&Ms and, and those kind of things. Uh, one, one thing that's really 
uh, interesting that I noticed is you said you're working with a PR firm. Yes. Um, actually, Mark helped set that up. So uh, it's a PR firm called Wonderkind. And um, Mark sent me an email right around the time the book was set to come out and uh, asked if I'd be interested in talking to them. And so I uh, gave them a call and they asked to see the book. And uh, it's a little bit like finding an agent, finding good PR firm. They kind of have to qualify that they want to work with you because they turn out to be so busy and um, et cetera that um, you kind of have to pass the test, I guess, to have them work with you. But they turned out to be absolutely great. What they primarily did was got me a lot of placements for articles and things that would raise the profile of the book. So they they first brainstormed ideas that they thought would be in alignment with the kind of story I'd written. And then they reached out to a bunch of different um, websites and publishing places and said, hey, would you be interested in an article about such and such? And uh, actually landed me quite a number of um, little guest articles and blog posts and things like that. Wow, that's cool. Like, I didn't imagine uh, a lot of authors think of that. Usually people, when they start promoting something, it's usually, okay, I'll use Twitter and I'll use Facebook. And that's kind of the extent that they they do. They don't really reach out beyond that. So that's definitely uh, something for authors to think about is uh, another way to uh, spread their wings, so to speak, is, you know, get involved with different different ways to promote work because uh, that's the that's the biggest struggle for a lot of writers is just finding people that want to read <laughs> your stuff absolutely you know at, at various points there it's been possible to promote a book just through facebook or twitter but there's so many people doing it now that it's harder and harder to cut through just on the basis of hey i wrote a book you know more and more i think people are attracted to social media and and other encounters that give them something valuable not just the information that something's available and uh yeah I, I found it tremendously helpful and have seen you know little spikes in the interest in the book based on each of the articles and things that have come out let's talk about fishwilder some more this story is really out there as far as especially some of the names the the names are are <laughs> me and rob are reading the just reading the map on your website. We were just laughing like at the name of some of the places. Two of my favorites are uh, stank and, <laughs> and uh, splurf. Those are my two personal favorites. And of course, also in the book, you have weapons and characters that have, you know, outlandish names such as, such as the onomatopoeia inspired, uh, fwang, which I assume is the sound of the, the bow makes when you shoot it. Uh, Blurmflard, the magical broadsword, and uh, Thoral's steed, warlord horse, <laughs> and uh, Rob's personal favorite. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna fuck this up, probably. Tensi Chichaw Chichi Weewa. Now you nailed that. Ah, oh, shit. Cool. <laughs> the flying squirrel. Yep. How'd you come up with these names? Did you just like, uh, fuck it, stank? <laughs> <laughs> well, first, I read a lot of fantasy novels. And um, when I was a kid, you know, I started reading fantasy probably when I was 10 or 11. And um, I, I started where probably lots of people start, which is with Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. And um, there's a lot of crazy names in there. <laughs> and when I started, I 
you know, nobody was reading it to me. I was reading it to myself. And you kind of stumble your way through how you think those names must be pronounced. And um, as it turned out, I was wrong about 80% of the time. But you get so used to saying that name and hearing it in your own head that when you finally hear how it's actually pronounced, um, you know, you prefer your own pronunciation. You're like, ah, the author was incorrect about how that was supposed to be pronounced. I got it right. Um, so one big influence was that. I wanted to do those kind of unpronounceable outlandish names that you find in fantasy because they seemed really ripe to make fun of. So that's like the Tinsy kind of name. <laughs> um, really long, really elaborate and difficult. Um, that was one part. I had a sort of three-pronged naming convention. That was the first one. Outlandish fantasy style names. The second piece was um, names that were to me funny because they kind of cut through that and got right to uh, trying to name a quality of the thing, like stank. Um, you know, that nobody would name a thing stank in a high fantasy novel because it's too descriptive of, of what it is. Uh, there's a kind of monster. I don't know if you've run into them in the book yet, but they're called bar farts. <laughs> and um, the idea with that was that's kind of what they're like. Um, and then the third convention was, um, names that would be absolutely ridiculous because they either mean something on our, you know, in human language or they were just so basic. So, uh, for example, there are, are characters, there's a guy named Futon in the book. <laughs> um, cause you know, on Grom, that's just a cool sound. Um, and then there are characters like Brad, yeah. um, you know, just straight up everyday kind of name. So that was, you know, I was trying to combine those three things in order to achieve maximum comedic effect. Yeah, I think you did <laughs> stellar job with that. Uh, well, just, thank you very much. It's just uh, sometimes I'll come across something as I'm reading and I'll just feel like, wow, that's awesome. One of the big highlights of the book is is the dialogue and, and the characters really, really shine in this book. Uh, Thoral is, is, is kind of your, uh, typical honorable barbarian kind of character. He's pretty serious for the most part, but I think, I think his role is to be kind of the serious character amidst all this insanity. And, uh, Brad is his, his, uh, voice of reason, so to speak, I guess. And, uh, and he's a fish. <laughs> it's just <laughs> hangs out with them. As far as Thoral goes, he comes from a tradition of barbarian kick-ass characters. Uh, Conan, uh, Fafrid, uh, if I'm pronouncing that right. That's, that's oh, yeah. one of those hard-to-pronounce names, Fafrid. Absolutely. Why do you think barbarians are so popular in fantasy fiction to to have as characters? Um, I think there are probably a number of reasons, but key ones to me, there's a kind of purity to the motives of a barbarian character. You know, they're, they're very direct. They don't have a lot of um, layers of civility and reserve placed on them so they can be super honest and blunt. And um, they're like answering a problem with a hammer. There's a kind of satisfaction that you get to just hammering a thing to pieces when it gets in your way that I think, you know, most people feel is missing from their everyday civilized life and so there's a kind of fantasy wish fulfillment that happens there like yeah that's how i'd do it if i wasn't constrained by all these layers of society and etc there's a kind of 
just a fun in um, seeing those characters attack things. And then I think also there's a almost an innocent nobility in those kinds of characters as well. They're adults and, and, you know, they're motivated by all the same kind of adult motives that we would have. But because there isn't that intervening layer of sophistication, they can have a kind of innocence about them that is, I don't know, interesting to see. You mentioned Fafford from the um, Lankamar books. Uh, he's definitely that way. He's like a, a big, strong little boy in a lot of ways. And I think even in Conan, you know, that's that's what the barbarian is. He's like a massively strong little boy in an adult body. So he just goes at his problems. Um, he has still these um, naive motives and sense of honor and, you know, like he hasn't been soiled by the world yet. And I think people find that attractive. What is your feeling about the idea of comic fantasy in general? Since you're playing with kind of more traditional tropes, so to speak, such as the barbarian or wizards and elves and those kind of things. Uh, why do you, why do you think comic fantasy isn't mentioned as much as it probably should be? I mean, Terry Pratchett was one of the all time greats in fa fantasy fiction period, but, and Piers Anthony, who you got a blurb from, uh, which is awesome. Uh, also, you know, really, really big in the more comedic style fantasy. Why do you think we trend towards the darker side of fantasy so much? I think that um, when we encounter humor, uh, there's a certain assumed lightness to it that suggests that it's it's probably not going to be very meaningful. And, um, you know, I think the relevance of a story comes out of a sense that there's some meaning in it that's valuable for you right now in your life. Um, so when a story sticks with you, I think it's it's because um, it seems to suggest some way of approaching, you know, conflicts that you have in your own life. It, it provides some kind of gem of wisdom of how to deal with that. And we look for that when we're reading something serious, you know, it's like, oh, okay, uh, what's the message in this story? And I think a lot of times we think, oh, a comedy is really just here to make me laugh. And consequently, it's it's either going to be short on that or it's not going to have it. And so I think a lot of comedy gets dismissed from that perspective. But, you know, there are certain comedies that um, really do stick with people like Monty Python and the Holy Grail. As you mentioned, the Terry Pratchett books, the um, Piers Anthony's Anth books, because what those guys were doing wasn't just making popcorn books. You know, they, they weren't just entertaining. They were burying their message, hiding it in amongst the laughs and the humor. And, and that's what really makes it work. But I think, again, you know, people aren't primed to be looking for it there so that uh, it doesn't get the same kind of heavy consideration that more serious stuff gets. My favorite stuff tends to be the material that's um, making me laugh so hard I don't realize that it's also putting a powerful message in at the same time. But, you know, I think, you know, the other issue is that what makes people laugh can vary pretty widely. And even the mood you're in when you read something funny uh, can <laughs> determine for you whether you thought it was funny or not. So there's a certain amount of hit or miss that happens with humor that makes it fairly difficult to do. Anyway, I, you know, I don't think it's harder than any other form of writing. I just think it it probably gets less consideration from the audience in terms of its relevance and impact. And then also that there is that sense that, you know, certain types of comedy aren't for everybody. I think uh, nowadays there is that kind of 
uh, comedy happening on a bigger scale, such as uh, South Park or Rick and Morty. I don't know if you watch Rick and Morty, but it's pretty outlandish, crazy. Absolutely. (laughs) Adventure Time, right in that same territory. (laughs) Yeah, It seems those shows have that comedic quality that I'm often looking for in books. And, mm-hmm. and I just can't find it that often, but Fishwielder is one of those books that, that I started reading and was like, wow, this is like the kind of stuff I want to be reading more of because I enjoy that, that style of animation, uh, that, that kind of deals with, uh, the over the top, uh, funny, crazy kind of story, but also has, like you said, it's got that gem of, <laughs> Something deeper that is buried underneath all that if you if you go looking for it. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, comedic stuff out there that, that is speculative fiction, but we don't see it as much in novel form or short story form. Uh, are, there, are there any people that you can think of that you would suggest to anyone that's that's looking for that kind of stuff? Same as me. So, you know, we've talked about a lot of the big ones already. Terry Pratchett, uh, Douglas Adams, we didn't mention, but uh, one of my favorites for uh, humor that has a, a powerful meaning that's buried in it. Uh, Piers Anthony's Xanth books. Uh, we talked a little bit about Fafford, who's from Fritz Lieber's work. You know, Fritz Lieber, that stuff's not so much like jokes and laugh out loud kind of funny. But there's a lot of humor that's built in it. He was one of the first um, funny fantasy writers where I realized that the story didn't itself have to be a joke that, you know, could be a serious story that just had a lot of humor in it. And I think, um, you know, sort of watching the arc of how movies and things have changed, there's a lot more of that kind of sense of humor that gets incorporated these days. Uh, But so those are, you know, those are a lot of the big ones in literature that I'm familiar with. There's a guy I'm trying to think of his his first name is Yahtzee. Yahtzee. Oh, I, think I, I think I've heard of him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's written some some funny books that tend into the fantasy kind of territory. There's a I'm trying to think. <laughs> I'm not sitting in front of my books. Normally, I would have my whole range of books right in front of me so that I could comment. But um, yeah, it's, it's a difficult thing. Um, I think part of the issue with Humor in books as well is that, uh, and you know, this is just my theory, but laughter is kind of a shared thing. You know, I think it's a, a societal mechanism, and so it's easier to laugh when you're with other people. And um, you know, sitting alone with a book isn't exactly the ideal comedy place. You know, even when you're watching a show or a movie or something, even if you were alone. Well, in a movie, you're likely to be with an audience. But even if you were sitting at home alone watching a show, the show has its own presence because it's depicting other humans in a way where you can see them and almost interact with them. And so I think it's a little easier to laugh in that kind of setting. Again, I'm getting kind of theoretical here, but that's just the perception that I have is that I don't know that people turn to books as often for funny stuff as they would to certain other media. I wish I wish people people did, though. It's my dream. Yeah. One of my dreams. I write kind of similar. I usually don't talk about this as much as I used to, but I write similar style fantasy. It's kind of parody or satirical some sense. And it does have a lot of violence in it as well. Um, one, one thing 
that that's interesting about fish wielder is that it is comedic, but there, there are decapitations and vomiting and necromancy and like all this kind of traditionally dark stuff. Uh, how do you approach this when you're writing it and still keep it lighthearted to where it's not, you know, typically those things would be pretty, pretty dark and pretty heavy. Yeah. Uh, well, first, let me back up a second and say, hey, I'd like to read some of the stuff that you're writing because it sounds like that would be right up my alley. Uh, is there anything available yet? Yeah, I have I have four things on Amazon. It's called Splatter Elf. I don't I don't usually talk about it on the show well, as much as I used to, but excellent. I will uh, pop over to Amazon as soon as we're done here and check that stuff out. That sounds awesome. Oh, cool. Um, my uh, my take on the violence thing is that if you take it over the top and really, so a lot of fantasy is about combat, and combat is a horrific thing. <laughs> you know, it's uh, I have not personally been in actual life and death hand to hand combat, but I used to um, I used to do mock combat quite a bit when I was younger. Uh, you know, with padded weapons and things like that. And and it's some serious business. It's pretty terrifying, even if you know that you're unlikely to get your head taken off. But anything that's that's as dramatic as that has a lot of um, opportunity for humor if you just take the drama up a couple of notches and if you work with the conventions of the of the genre, but push them. So, you know, there's lots of times in Conan where he hacks somebody's head off and, you know, it tumbles through the air kind of thing. And, uh, or he'll stab somebody and Iker will spray out. And, you know, uh, I just decided to push those things, um, to make them either ridiculous or gross. So whenever Thoro punches, uh, you know, like giant spider in the eye and, um, Iker squirts out, it squirts on him. And, um, you know, I really wanted to play with, how you would react in a real situation like that, where that's gross. And, um, you know, yeah, you're you're in a life and death struggle, but that was still gross that that stuff got on you. And so, you know, you'd think about that. That that was basically the, the take I had, was that if you pushed it far enough, it becomes a sort of cartoon of violence. And then it's not quite as devastating to read about or dark to read about, because you would laugh when you saw that. Um, and then... In amongst that super overblown, super dramatic, almost hyper dramatic violence, I wanted to throw in little moments of how would a regular person uh, respond to that? So, you know, if if somebody got their head hacked off as, as gross as that might be, you know, he might actually giggle a little bit about it if it looked funny. And, uh, you know, like I said, if, if Iker sprayed on your face, you might, you know, immediately be thinking about how you could wipe it off as well as how you're going to survive the battle that you're engaged in. Uh, so that was that's kind of the goal was to modulate the hyper drama with little hyper moments of realism in order to to try and surprise the audience and get some comedy out of it. Did you research think, Spider Iker at all? Like what? Uh, <laughs> you know, I the only research I did was all the giant spiders that I've encountered in different fantasy novels over time. Oh. I uh, I really fell down on the job on that. <laughs> Uh, but in terms of the over-the-top violence, I did watch a lot of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You know, I, I think about the Black Knight scene there where he gets all of his limbs hacked off. And uh, when his first limb gets hacked off, it's it's mildly amusing. But by the time his fourth major limb gets hacked off, it's really funny. Yeah, that was the kind of thing I was going for. I actually thought about some of my students were interested 
you know, I teach English and some of my students were interested in seeing, uh, American style comedy, uh, because I'm in Japan. They don't, they don't know, uh, American or British style comedy that much. So I was thinking about showing them the, that scene <laughs> from the black Knight scene. Good. That and the the rabbit of Karabanog. <laughs> yeah, but I worried like having a rabbit not you know chew someone's head off or watching someone get hacked to hacked to death may may not <laughs> translate the the humor may not translate as as well. So I decided to not do it. But to hold back a little. <laughs> yeah, there, there's always the future. I may change my mind one of these days. You know, every once in a while, I'll be channeling around and I'll stumble across a Japanese game show. Hmm. And um, although I don't really know what they're doing, it does look pretty uh, over the top and amusing. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's an interesting way of looking at what is considered over the top in different cultures. Because some things we may consider over the top, it's not considered as over the top, but mm-hmm. but even... For example, if I show my wife something that's on Japanese TV, mm-hmm. even she would be like, you know, what, what the fuck is that? <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's not, it's not like all, all people are like, yeah, that's totally normal. Like they realize, yeah, that's, that's really weird. But I like the idea of grimdark as a genre is that it's, you know, people have all these different definitions for it, but one thing that I've noticed about it is that about any genre is that it sort of has to evolve and continue to evolve uh, over time. And my feeling is that one branch of grimdark could even be what we call uh, what we've been saying recently. Anyway, in one of the groups is uh, grimdark as fuck. So basically <laughs> if something is grimdark as fuck, it's so dark that it transcends <laughs> the darkness almost like yeah, some... have have you read uh john dies at the end no no not yet oh you should definitely <laughs> it sounds almost exactly like what you're describing oh okay cool john right. dies at the end and this book is full of spiders by uh david wong yeah i was looking up some of his stuff recently actually because uh he, had, he has a new book that just came out and futuristic it, violence and fancy suits yeah and it showed up yep. on my amazon recommended list and i was like oh i've heard of this guy before i should check this shit out but um i i call it like the deadpool effect mm-hmm. you know deadpool took traditionally very dark subject matter took the comic book superhero genre and kind of uh, flipped it on its head completely and and it made mega bucks and I don't think mm-hmm. anybody thought that was going to happen. So that's kind of where I think one branch of fantasy may go is to the, to the, in, in Fishwielder is a good example of this, uh, the kind of over the top fantasy action and that doesn't take itself too seriously and, and has fun with the tropes and, and slathers the blood and splatters it everywhere <laughs> and has a, has a good time with it. Well, I certainly hope so. It's the kind of stuff that I really like to read, and I'd like to see more of it. I do uh, actually just on Halloween uh, signed a deal for another book, not in the Fishwielder series, but a, a more horror kind of story, but with ideally some of the same kind of sense of humor. It's called Demon Freaks, and uh, you know, as you were describing the so dark black that it becomes funny again horror territory. 
I like to think that it touches on that a little bit. But anyway, yeah, I, I, I've always loved horror and fantasy, but my particular leaning has always been with taking the the areas that feel like they're ripe to play with and then playing with them a little, as opposed to just, you know, taking those those tropes and using them. I like to take them and push them and bend them and see how far you can push them before they break. Do you think sometimes it's, it's almost good to play with unintentional humor? Because one time I was watching a uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Lucio Fulci. He's a he was an Italian horror director, and he had this movie uh, called Zombie, and it's pretty terrible in like a good way. Filled with terror. Yeah, filled with terror. Hor- horrific. It's a yes. better word. But there's this one scene where there a zombie is in the ocean, and it's a shark attacks it, and the the zombie just starts punching the shark, and it's this moment of like. <laughs> What the fuck? Like it, it's all, it totally doesn't fit with the tone of the movie, which is ultra serious. Mm-hmm. But it just suddenly there's a zombie punching a shark in this middle of this movie. <laughs> do do you think that uh, more fiction like that that has that kind of vibe, like it's like it's schlocky or B movie style humor, ha- has a place in today's society? I do. I think um, it's a fine line. Hmm. between laughing with something and laughing at it. And I think, um, you know, when when you hit the moments that are um, so terrible, <laughs> and I mean that now in the, that was poorly done or that was unexpectedly breaking the the tone that's been built up so far, those can either wreck a thing or they can, in some weird way, make it feel more transcendent. Hard to describe. I don't know if you've ever read the um, book, The Eye of Argon. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's one of my favorite stories ever, actually. (laughs) Everything in that is so perfectly wrong that, um, you know, it's, it's kind of an inspiration almost. It's like, I know people have for years speculated that it wasn't really somebody sincerely writing a, a piece of, uh, fantasy that just turned out to be so over the top that it was that. But, um, you know, now that I've seen all the research on that guy and and how he wrote the story, he really meant it. <laughs> it's just really um, crazily awesome. It's like a barbarian. It has a kind of innocence to it and purity to it. And it just goes right at the thing that it's trying to do um, in a way that is kind of, I don't know, transcendent. Well, I haven't seen the movie you're talking about, but the moment when a zombie is punching a shark feels to me like perhaps the director was intending that to be really symbolically meaningful, you know, because you've got these two unstoppable predators that we are terribly afraid of because of the idea they would eat us alive. (laughs) And so he pitted them against each other. And uh, he might have thought that was really meaningful and powerful. But there's a certain amount of, wow, that's like frosting on top of a cookie on top of a cake. You know, there's just so much going on there that... Uh, at some point it just it becomes laughable there there's also this idea of um nowadays where people are making movies that are obviously supposed to be stupid <laughs> like mm-hmm. shark Sharknado. sharknado. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but they totally embrace it they're like okay we know this is stupid we know this is completely implausible you know, sharks are going into outer space and attacking <laughs> like space stations or whatever the fuck happens in one of them. Mm-hmm. But there's this idea with comedy that 
I think nowadays people have laughed at almost everything. So you almost have to either be like super over the top or, or super offensive or something like that in order to, to get people's attention. And then Sharknado is kind of a mixture, <laughs> mixture of the two. It's like sharks flying everywhere. It kind of tests your plausibility factor or suspension of disbelief or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that style would be po- ever be possible in fiction at all? Like an Eye of Argon type of thing or, you know, Sharknado style fantasy fiction or sci-fi fiction? Yeah, I do. I think, um, you know, I think there were precedents set for that kind of Sharknado humor. If you go back, you know, movie-wise to like Spaceballs or something like that. I think the difference is that um, they're assuming the Sharknado people a certain level of audience sophistication where they're saying, we are going to make a parody of this kind of, this genre, but there aren't going to be any jokes in it. What it's going to be is everything that you've ever seen in this kind of, it's going to be everything that you've ever seen in this kind of film, amped up and smashed together and taken seriously or at least apparently taken seriously, but with absolute abandon and glee to make a exquisitely awful, uh, <laughs> awful piece of work. And um, I think that there's definitely room for that. I think, you know, in some ways, uh, South Park is sort of that in a version of a kid show. Like if if you took every element of a kid show, the clumsy cutout paper animation and the cute looking character design and all that kind of stuff. And then you added something absolutely um, incongruous to it, which is the crudity and the you know adult themes and language. And all of a sudden you've got a new thing that is not exactly like any animation you've ever seen before. But you can see how the Simpsons sort of paved the way for it a little bit because they took the idea of the animated family show. It's basically like the Flintstones, but with a more modern sensibility. And then South Park is like, okay, now we're going to take it farther still. And I think Sharknado is people saying, hey, you know, there's a certain appreciation for these movies that are so bad they're good. And everybody's seen dozens of horror movies before and they know what the tropes are. And so what if we were to do a combination of those two things, something that is ham fistedly bad on purpose and at the same time appears to sincerely dive into every one of the tropes and use it like every single cliche you've ever seen. We're going to amp it up a bit and put it all together so that every part of it becomes really ridiculous. And I'd say there's a certain, you know, I, I had some of that in mind when I was writing Fishwielder. Um, my goal was always to have it serve as a good story on its own, in addition to being like, I wanted people to be able to read it. And at the end of it, say, even if that hadn't been funny, that would have been a good story. Whereas I think with like a Sharknado, there's a certain amount of, okay, we're assuming from the first second of the the show that, um, you know, this is absolutely ludicrous. It could never happen because we're acknowledging that right off just with the name Sharknado. You have to suspend your disbelief if you're going to keep watching. You have to, like, get in the boat with us and row along with us. Otherwise, you're not going to enjoy this at all. So nobody walks into that one thinking this is going to be a serious piece of, you know, sort of uh, science fiction horror or whatever it would normally have been. Yeah, this it's it's interesting to to think about all these different forms of comedy that exist, and I definitely think Fishwilder is going to get people's attention. It, it's it it hits all the right notes for me, 
And I know there are other people out there that think the same way I do. At least I hope there hope there are. Uh, Me too. <laughs> for, for for my sake and your sake and everyone's everyone's sake. Uh, so if you can, can you give can you give us one final pitch for people who are looking who want to pick up fish wielder? Can you give us one? Uh, why should you pick up fish wielder? <laughs> Hmm, that's a good one. I would say that it is a, um, uh, it was meant to be at least, uh, epically silly bit of escapist fantasy that actually, um, at the end of the day, was intended to push the genre forward a little bit, the fantasy genre, by bringing in, you know, amusingly new elements and combining them together in ways that you didn't expect. It's a, actually a book with a fair number of twists in it. And so far, the folks that I've gotten feedback from have uh, have claimed to have been surprised by those twists. So <laughs> I think that would be my uh, my pitch would be uh, if you're interested in reading a nice light comedy that may be more than it seems to be, hopefully Fishwheeler would be right for you. Awesome. So, oh, and there's a lot of violence. <laughs> <laughs> a shitload of violence. Yeah. And a little dab of Cthulhu, too. So. Oh, everyone loves Cthulhu. Everybody does. It's probably not good for them, but everybody does. There should be a sitcom. Everybody loves Cthulhu. I can see it already. <laughs> That'd uh, be a good one. <laughs> uh, one thing we do on the show every so often, um, if you're if you're interested in doing it, uh, we do a thing called Roll One Up, where you you this is this has nothing to do with uh, the typical interpretation of Roll One Up. It's rolling rolling up a character for your world. So uh, we can roll up a, a new character for the world of Grome that uh, maybe you could even use one day. Or people could dress up as or something. I don't know. Yeah, sure. I'm open to that. Okay, cool. So we're going to roll one up for uh, J.R.R.R. Hardison's <laughs> Fishwilder World of Grome. So let's get started. So I'm going to give you some prompts, and then you just, whatever comes to your mind first, uh, you can share with us. And we're going to create a new character. So the first thing is gender. Okay, I think it should be a female. Okay. And then the next thing, how about weapon, chosen weapon? Chosen weapon, probably a lawn dart. Lawn dart. Magic lawn dart? Of course. <laughs> What does this magic lawn dart do? Uh, my guess would be, because I'm only guessing at the moment, but that it would unerringly hit a target once a day. Awesome. Okay, next. How about any armor? Does she wear any armor? Uh, no. No armor. Uh, steed of any type. We know Thoral has, a, has a, the faithful warlord horse. Yeah, I think probably a mighty Shetland pony. <laughs> okay. Probably fairly chubby, that pony. Would it have any sort of armored barding on it? Yeah, I think, you know, that um, head armor that you see on horses sometimes in, like, Conan movies? <laughs> like, they have that big metal plate that goes down the bridge of their nose? Yeah. I think that the pony would have armor of that variety. Okay. Next thing, sidekick. Does does she have a sidekick like uh, Thoral? Um, sidekicks are always good. So yes, I think she should probably have, uh, let's go with a, uh, walking, talking, sentient piece of vegetation. So let's say that she's got a, uh, talking rutabaga. Okay. And the rutabaga, uh, 
Does he have any armor or weapons? <laughs> uh, no, he primarily uh, he primarily interacts with people with his disarming intelligence. Oh. I don't even know what a rutabaga looks like. Is that a- It's about the size of uh, your fist if you've got a big hand. <laughs> and um, it's kind of purple and then verging to white. It's uh, shaped kind of like a turnip. It's a root vegetable. I imagine it wears like a little hat or something. You know, they have a um, like three, since it grows underground, it has like three like leaf stalk kind of things that come up out of the center of the top of it. And so he, he could just have that. Oh, cool. In place of a hat. <laughs> okay, a few more things. Who is her sworn enemy? Let's say that there is a privateer captain who um, she believes was responsible for uh, the destruction of her village. Okay. And uh, what is? do you have a name for him? Captain Crumbrow. <laughs> okay. Okay, so we have <laughs> Captain Crumbrow. Disarmingly intelligent Rutabaga. Yes. And what is our new character's name? What is her name? I want to say Thelma. <laughs> Thelma. Yep. All right. So we have Thelma, the awesome lawn dart lady. <laughs> yes. And that lawn dart, when it unerringly hits, the thing that it unerringly hits is got to be your eye one time every day. So in battle, one throw, she gets to pick that it'll unerringly hit somebody in the eye. But every throw after that, you, you know, there's no telling. Probably if you hit somebody in the eye with the lawn dart anyway, it'd stick right in their <laughs> skull. And then it'd take you a while to get that thing back out. So, you know, you probably only get the one throw. <laughs> yeah, that'd be like a daily struggle. Like you throw the lawn dart and then you got to spend an hour like. Wedging twi- it out of somebody's head. <laughs> twisting it up. Yeah. But you could even, you know, with a lawn dart like that, you could even unerringly hit the eye of a gnat or something, oh. which wouldn't, you know, that wouldn't take any time to get it back out. But depending on how dangerous the gnat was, you know, you may have wasted your opportunity. It'd be useful for swamps. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if there was only one gnat, it would be tremendously useful. But on gnats number two through 2000, probably not as good. Okay, great. We got Thelma, so you can <laughs> you can do something with her or not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I will. Uh, I'll look for an opportunity <laughs> to incorporate her. Uh, they in the second book there there is a lot of opportunity for sort of in and out characters. So I will. Uh, I'll consider <laughs> Thelma. Okay, so we're gonna wrap up the interview now. With last couple of things, do you have any con appearances coming up soon? I don't at the moment. Um, did a bunch of those and finished them up, and then the book came out, and now I've got to start looking at the calendar again. Okay, and did you do you have any contact information for anyone who wants to find you on the interwebs? Sure. So um, you can contact me. You could write to me at J R R R three R's J R R R R at fishwielder dot com. You could visit the fishwielder.com website, or you could contact me through the Facebook page, which is Fishwielder, or on Twitter at Fishwielder. Um, <laughs> again, it you know, good name in terms of nobody wanted it prior to this, so I got that. And then, uh, if you don't mind me uh, also throwing out, there's now a Demon Freaks, um, Demon Freaks Facebook page and a Demon Freaks website, DemonFreaks.com. Again, one of those ones nobody taken it yet. So awesome. Can you give us a release date for Demon Freaks, or do you, do you have any idea? 
The uh, the plan at the moment is that it's coming out Halloween of 2017. Oh, cool. Well, we'd love to have you back on and talk about demon freaks. I love me some demons. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> and I am definitely checking out your books. Like I said, as soon as I uh, get off of this call, I'm heading right over to Amazon. Oh, cool. I really appreciate that. Well, I appreciate you interviewing me. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And for everyone listening... Usually Rob does this part, but I'm going to try to do it. So, if you're looking for the Grim Tidings podcast on the internet, you can find us at facebook.com slash the Grim Tidings podcast. We're also on Twitter at Grim Dark Fiction. So, if you're interested in following us and looking at all the cool shit we talk about, then go over there. Until next time, for Rob Matheny, I'm Philip Overby. And remember, stay grim, stay dark. I'm going to fuck this up. (laughs) Stay true. See you next time.